Welcome everybody to Wednesday night. Great to be together and just worship the Lord. What a sweet time that was and worship. And uh, we're going to continue on just in worship of the Lord as we sit at his feet and just uh, open up his good word here tonight. So we're in Genesis chapter 27. If you want to make your way to Genesis chapter 27, if you do not have a Bible with you tonight, that's all right. We got some in the back table. If you want to just um, sneak out and grab one of those at the back table, then you can follow along with us here. And uh, like I say, we're going to be picking up here in Genesis chapter 27, looking at some fun stuff here tonight. Family tensions and dysfunction can be all too common of a thing. Some of you maybe have experienced that in your own family time. Some of you maybe have not experienced that. Um, it's something I'm sure a lot of people love to try to hide and pretend doesn't exist. Take, for example, um, the Smith family. No relation to me, but the Smiths were very proud of their family tradition. Their ancestors had come to America on the Mayflower, their line had included senators, pastors, Wall Street wizards. Now they decided to compile a, a family history, a legacy for the children. So they hired a well-known author. Only one problem arose. How to, how to handle that great uncle George who was executed in the electric chair? So the author said, listen, don't worry. He could handle that section of his story very tactfully. So when the book appeared, the family turned to that section on uncle George. There they read, George Smith occupied a chair of applied electronics at an important government institution. He was attached to his position by the strongest of ties, and his death came as a real shock. <laughs> it's very true how we like to try to cover up some of the uh, parts of our history or family ties that are less than glamorous. And I'm thankful, though, that the Bible doesn't choose to do that that the Bible reveals the kinds of human tendencies that we're all perhaps at times wrestling through and dealing with, that the Bible allows those things to be seen. It's a part of life, especially life after the fall. And our passage today here details some less than glamorous happenings in the family of Isaac and Rebekah. Now in chapter 27, we're going to see a family at work seeking to carry out the plans that they think um, that, that they think are important. We're going to see Isaac and Esau seek to subvert the plans of God. And Rebecca and Jacob seek to safeguard the plans of God. Though you could almost give Rebecca and Jacob a bit of a, a pass, they're at fault by simply not trusting that God would be able to carry out what he has already said he would do. You see, they've all had that revealed will of God, haven't they? The whole family of of Jake, or sorry, of Isaac and Rebekah have already been told by God what he's going to do. In fact, we see in Genesis chapter 25, verse 23, the Lord came to them and said, two nations are in your womb, right? Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So the Lord's already made it clear to Rebekah, who's we know, I'm, I'm sure, has passed it on to her own family, that the Lord has made it very clear that things are not going to be absolutely normal in the family in the sense that the older is going to kind of take the mantle now and be the leader in the home. That's going to that's happen with the younger brother. That was very unusual, very different. But God laid it out for them to say, I'm going to do something different here. And yet, human intervention steps in once again to complicate matters. Look at verse 4, chapter 27. And if anybody gets cold in here, which I think our temperature might be set, is everybody, is anybody like going, we got to not make it so cold? Bring the temperature up a little bit. Is anybody going, no, leave it, it's really good? Okay. Oh, okay. I'm going to do, I'm, we are usually not this diplomatic around here. Hands up if you like it where it's at. Hands up if you're saying, please make it a little bit warmer. I'm sorry, you guys do not prevail here. All right. Sorry. Okay. If it gets really bad, somebody can maybe adjust the temperature here if, if you need it. But look at verse 1 of chapter 27. It says this. Now, it came to pass when Isaac was old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see that he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son. And he answered him, here I am. Then he said, behold, now I am old. I do not know the day of my death. 
Now therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and make me savory food such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. So here's Isaac, and he's looking now to do what? He's looking to pass the blessing on to Esau. He's looking to make Esau the guy that's going to be the, the leader, in a sense, of the home now, which is typically the way that you do it, the, the birthright, that honor of headship now in the home and in the family, and the greater portion of the inheritance would go to that firstborn of who Esau was. Isaac thinking, well, this has got to be the way it's got to go. And now also we saw from our last study that Isaac loved Esau, whereas Rebekah loved Jacob. So Esau, uh, Isaac is looking just to do something that's very natural, but how is he being led right now? Isaac's being led by the flesh. Notice how we read that he desired this savory food, that he loves, that he may eat of it. This is a man that seems to be more interested in satisfying his own cravings than he does carrying out God's will at this point in his life. See, it's, it's kind of a sad ending for the life of Isaac that looks to willingly, it seems, willingly override God's determined plan to pass the blessing onto Esau instead. And in that day, to give that verbal blessing was every bit as binding legally as a written will or contract in the ancient Near East. So Isaac knew full well that to give Esau the blessing was ultimately to usurp what God had already said. Now, why would he do that? We're not entirely sure. It does say that he thought he was near death. Perhaps Isaac is at a point in his life where he's thinking, you know, time's running out. And it seems apparent that Esau is the logical choice to carry on the mantle of leadership and headship in the family. He seems to be the, the gruff one, the guy that's ready to go out and kill game to bring food onto the table here. Isaac's probably looking at Esau going, this seems to be the obvious logical choice. Nothing else seems to be falling in a place right now. Perhaps God has forgotten about what he said. That's been a long time ago. So Isaac seems to step in and take matters in his own hands. Isaac says there, I, I do not know the day of my death. Now Isaac's 137 years old at this point. Approximately 37 years has passed since the events of the previous chapter. He's seen Ishmael die at 137 years and perhaps Isaac's thinking, man, my time is up. I'm reaching the point where I'm gonna die. And he may be thinking that since nothing has been done to confirm Jacob as the heir, then maybe it just wasn't meant to be. So like Abraham, in the Hagar affair, Isaac seeks to help God out. Listen, it's never a good thing when we feel that God is relying on us to help him out or to carry out his plans. Oh, no doubt God loves to work with us and use us to carry out his plans, but God is never relying on our ingenuity to do a work that God can do all by himself. Perhaps Isaac's being led by fear and doubt and it's robbing him from trusting God because interestingly, Isaac's gonna live another 43 years. Isaac's thinking, man, I, I, I'm probably looking like my days are, are very numbered, but yeah, he's gonna live another 43 years. And I wonder how often we limit God or underestimate his plans by not seeing by faith what he's still planning to accomplish. Oftentimes we can think, time's running out, we gotta make this happen. And yet God's going, oh, you don't know <laughs> my timing. You don't know what I've got lined up, what I've got already in the works, preparing for all things to come together for the good. To those that just love me, to those that are, are gonna just follow me by faith, Isaac seems to be taking matters in his own hands, perhaps led by fear and doubt thinking, I don't know if God's going to be able to pull this together. It's the same place that Abraham and Sarah were at when they're thinking, I don't see that we're going to be able to have kids on our own. Maybe God had it wrong. Go with Hagar. So, it says in verse 5. Now, Rebecca, yeah, Natalie, you need to take that phone away from him. He's banned. He's banned from the phone. It's done. It, it was really nice in that first worship song. It didn't quite add, you know, timing-wise to it, but it was a nice little instrument in there. It's your solo. That's it. All right. 
Oh, that was great. So look at verse 5 here. It says, Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to Esau, his son. And Esau went to the field to hunt game and to bring it. So Rebekah spoke to Jacob, her son, saying, Indeed, I heard your father speak to Esau, your brother, saying, Bring me game and make savory food for me that I may eat it and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice according to what I command you. Go now to the flock and bring me from there two choice kids of the goats, and I will make savory food from them for your father, such as he loves. Verse 10, then you shall take it to your father, that he may eat it, and that he may bless you before his death. And Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, look, Esau, my brother's a hairy man, and I'm a smooth-skinned man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be a deceiver to him, and I shall bring a curse on myself and not a blessing. But his mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go get them for me. Rebecca is kind of taking a page out of her mother-in-law's book. Remember when, when the visitors came to Abraham and Sarah's in the tent kind of listening into the conversation, she starts to laugh, you know, it kind of mockingly. And she's called on it. Here's, here's Rebecca now eavesdropping on the conversation, understanding what, what Isaac and Esau are determining. And Rebecca steps in now to, again, sort of take matters in her own hands. But you can almost commend Rebecca in that she hears this plan by Isaac and she knows that that's subverting the will of God. This is not what God had lined up. It's Jacob that's to be over the older brother here. But the crazy thing here is that she did not need to concoct another plan of deceit to protect the will of the Lord. This is the problem here. Rebecca's going, well, we need to work on how we can protect God's will and do it by any means necessary. You know, at times people can seem to justify their actions of unrighteousness in order to procure the righteous work of God. Griffith Thomas said this, righteousness can never be laid aside even though our object is yet more righteousness. In personal life, in home life, in church life, in endeavors to win men for Christ, in missionary enterprise, in social improvement, and in everything connected with the welfare of humanity, we must insist upon absolute righteousness, purity, and truth in our methods or else we shall bring utter discredit on the cause of our Master and Lord. See, God does not need our help. And like I said, oh, I'm so thankful that he wants to use us and see us partner with him in his work. I'm so grateful that God could very easily just say, please stay out of the way. You're going to make a mess of things. Let me take care. He doesn't do that. He says, you know what? Come along. Because it's in that time of working alongside him, of being used by him, that we grow in relationship and fellowship with him. That's why I believe God chooses to use us. Oh, it probably creates more headaches for him. But he grows in fellowship and relationship and connection with us as he does that and he allows that. But he's never relying on our human ingenuity to accomplish his good and perfect work. Notice what Jacob says in verse 12. He says, I shall seem to be a deceiver to him. It's almost comical, isn't it? See, what do you mean seem to be, Jacob? That's kind of just who you are. In fact, you're named after that, heel catcher, deceiver. What do you mean it shall seem to be that I might be a deceiver to him? See, Jacob was more concerned about what others thought of him rather than who he truly was. One side is reputation. The other side is character. And what happens oftentimes is that we get very concerned about our reputation. Our reputation is how other people see us. Our character is simply who we truly are or how you could say how God sees us. We get very focused on our reputation. We don't want people to think badly about us. We're very concerned. They might think this about us. Listen, if you take care of your character, it's gonna take care of your reputation. And Jacob at this point is more concerned about his reputation, how Isaac might see him, than he is more about his character. D.L. Moody said, our character is what we are in the dark. When nobody's watching, when nobody's around, how do you live? What's your character say about you? Jacob being the deceiver or schemer that he is quickly, quickly knew the potential pitfall with this plan. He's starting to worry about the logistics of this. 
He's a schemer. He's, his wheels are spinning. He's like, okay, what's going to happen? How's this going to look? If I come to my dad, he's going to know right away it's me because there's some obvious character traits or, or physiological traits. Esau's a hairy man. And I'm, you know, GQ type, you know, metropolitan male, shaven everywhere. I'm clean. I'm, I'm, you know, no hair on me kind of a thing, right? That's what Jacob begins to think here. You got Esau you got the, you know, like lumberjack man versus like Wall Street accountant, not to stereotype here, but Jacob saw the danger, but he listened to the wrong voice. See, what does it say there? It says in verse 13, Rebecca says, only obey my voice. Only obey my voice. Jacob needed to realize, wait a second, mom, I know you love me and I, and I love you, mom, but there's one voice that I need to obey above and beyond every other voice. That's the voice of the Lord. What is God calling here? And see, we have to be on guard because we have competing voices that want to grab our attention and vie for our allegiance. We have Satan whispering into our ear to follow him and, and in so doing, that's going to ensure our happiness. We have the world that wants to yell into our ears to say, man, when you follow the world system, that's what's gonna truly bring satisfaction and pleasure. We have competing voices that wanna vie for our attention, our devotion. And these often, if we're not discerning, drown out that still small voice of the Lord that is always leading us in the true ways of blessing and peace. See, obeying God will always lead to your contentment and joy. No matter what that calling, no matter what that direction might be, when we choose to say, I'm going to obey God's voice over every other voice, you will be guaranteeing your contentment and joy. Oh, it may not always be easy, but you're going to be living in that peace and satisfaction that you're following the will of the Lord, which is always for your good. Rebecca giving some bad counsel and Jacob following some bad counsel. So it says in verse 14, and he went and got them and brought them to his mother and his mother made savory food such as his father loved. Then Rebecca took the choice clothes of her elder son Esau, which were with her in the house and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And she put the skins of the kids of the goats on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. Then she gave the savory food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So Jacob, at the, at the counsel of his mother, went and retrieved the supplies. Rebekah made the food just like Isaac loved this savory food. And, and she dressed Jacob up to appear just like he was, like Esau. It's, it's interesting even that people use that black silk-like hair, the camel goat in the east, right up until the Roman period to be used like as, as human hair, you know, kind of making wigs out of this same kind of here and so this whole scenario is just kind of looking like a setup for failure really I mean you could be looking at this going oh my goodness this is something like you know Lucille Ball would do and just get nailed for it right you're going this is not going to work right you're going to put animal hair on you you're going to wear your brother's clothes and Isaac's just going to be like oh it's Esau how lovely you know like you're thinking this is just a setup for failure here like if I were Jacob I'd be thinking this is the stupidest idea ever and there's no way this is going to work yet let's read on let's see here it says in verse 18 so he went to his father and said my father and he said here I am but who are you my son Jacob said to his father I am Esau your firstborn I've done just as you told me please arise sit and eat of my game that your soul may bless me but Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And he said, because the Lord your God brought it to me. Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. Isaac's getting a little bit suspicious here. Right? He's going, These, this voice isn't quite matching up. Man, that was awfully quick here. He's getting a little suspicious here. So it says in verse 22 that Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, well, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. So Jacob comes to, to Isaac here. And he's asked outright who he is. This is Jacob's chance to, to come clean. This is Jacob's chance to say, oh, dad, you know, oh, man. 
I'm so, I'm so freaking out. Like, I was going to deceive you and tell you I was Esau. And, and Rebecca put me up to it. But I can't do it. I can't go through it. This is his chance. But yet Jacob follows through. Jacob says, it's your son Esau. And he gives his first lie. Then he's confronted with another question that Isaac's a little suspicious of. How did you get this game so quick? I, mean, I just kind of send you out and all of a sudden you're back here with the game and you're feeding me. Like, this seems to be, like, my goodness. I mean, you know, there's... None of these delivery services at that time, they're calling up saying, hey, you know, bring me some food here, get all ready. Like he's going, this is not, doesn't seem to be right. And so here's Jacob's second opportunity. But now he doesn't take it. He moves into a second lie and a bigger lie. Jacob enters into a second lie, only this time he's really stepping into it. He says, this was God's provision. Uh Uh-oh. He's blowing it now. Like he's, he's entering into like blasphemous territory now by claiming this to be of God. God delivered this to me. Do you ever find that once you begin to spin a tale of deceit, it really has a way of getting out of hand? Don't answer that because I don't want to know who, who's being deceitful around here. But I'm sure there's been times in life where you've like, you start to kind of maybe go with a little white lie thing. It's no big deal. And suddenly this starts to get out of control on you. Before you know it, this thing is snowballed and it's just reaping more destruction. C.S. Lewis said, a little lie is like a little pregnancy. It doesn't take long before everyone knows. It's very true. So then, reading on verse 24, Isaac says, are you really my son? He said, look at he's still, he's still uncertain. He's still got his spidey sense that's going on here. Something's not right. And Jacob again, for the third time, the third lie says, I am. And it reminds us of Peter and that three denials before Christ. And so Isaac says, bring it near to me and I will eat of my son's game so that my soul may bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near now and kiss me, my son. And he came near and kissed him and he smelled the smell of his clothing and blessed him and said, surely the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. I don't know if that's a good thing or not. I mean... Wives, I don't know if you're ever using that as a, 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 you know, a line for your husbands here. You like the smell of the field. I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but it's working for Isaac here. But interestingly, the thing that we're noticing in all of this here, the great event in which Isaac was fooled and humiliated was an event in which he was relying entirely on his senses. Notice that. Isaac's quite blind here. He's not quite seeing. So he's feeling things. He's smelling things. He's, he's tasting things. All these things that are, are a part of the senses in his life. And yet, what do we see? His senses are letting him down. Such is the lot of the man who lives trivially, trivially and ignores the word that the Lord has spoken and the oaths that have been solemnly sworn. Allowing your senses to guide you are often going to betray you. A lot of times we can be led by emotions, by feelings, by that sensory part of our lives. And yet if we're not simply following the Lord and His Word, we can easily be led astray. Isaac is doing just that. It says in verse 28, Therefore may God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren, and let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be those who bless you. Now, what is interesting is that even though Isaac doesn't seem to be at his best, God still uses him to pass on the blessing to the right person, to Jacob. God still works through Isaac here to bring about the blessing that God had said all along was Jacob's. That's pretty amazing. Because I'm sure we've all at times seen, you know, people that we wonder, how could God ever use them or work through them? Perhaps you see a a preacher, you know, these televangelists on TV, and you see them doing these things, and you see their lives don't seem to, to line up with what they're saying. You think, man, they seem to be so off. How can God ever use them? sure we've been in that place before. I think more so the question can be asked, how can God ever use me? 
Why would God choose to work through a frail and fumbling person like me that's prone, as everyone else, to fall? And yet God chooses to work through imperfect people. And I'm thankful for that. Certainly God's work in ministry is diminished when people are not walking in integrity and willful sin. We certainly don't want to give a pass on those things. I'm thankful for the grace of God. And I'm thankful that the word of God is still greater than the person sharing it. It's been well said, by the grace of God, go I. We need to constantly thank God for his grace. So Isaac here in these two verses, verse 20 and 29, Isaac is now blessing. He's passing on that blessing again in a, in a verbal way, which was every bit as, as binding as a kind of legal contract. And so he passes on this blessing. Notice what he prays for. He prays for Jacob's prosperity, that the dew of heaven, fatness of the earth, plenty of grain and wine. He prays for his position, that people would serve him, nations bow down to him, and that he'd be master over his brethren. And he prays for his prestige. Prestige that, that those people that cursed him would be cursed, and those that blessed him would also be blessed. This word that Isaac spoke, though he thought he was speaking to Esau, were inspired of the Lord. They were prophetic. This carried with it the exact plan that God was bringing about through the patriarchs, through Abraham, Isaac, and now through Jacob. This last part echoes what was spoken to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 3. That those that curse you will be cursed, those that bless you will be blessed. Here now, God is continuing that promise now to Jacob. It's pretty amazing. So now we move into verse 30 and we begin to look at Esau again here and the, the fallout now from this. And it says in verse 30, Now it happened as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and, and Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, that Esau's brother came in from his hunting. He also had made savory food and brought it to his father and said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that your soul may bless me. And his father Isaac said to him, Who are you? So he said, I'm your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled exceedingly and said, Who? He's beside himself. How can this be? Where's the one who hunted game and brought it to me? I ate all of it before you came, and I've blessed him, and indeed he shall be blessed. This is a strong word used to say that Isaac trembled exceedingly. It's like saying that he shook convulsively. Why so? Because it was at that moment that he realized he had been fighting against God and he just lost. He just realized that the very plans of God that he was trying to usurp had actually come to fruition and that Isaac was unable to change anything that God has said he would do. The seismic shock that tore through Isaac's body and soul signaled the fall of his willful opposition to the word of God. As Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse so remarkably observed, he said, before a great work of grace, there must be a great earthquake. Isaac had put his personal love of Esau ahead of the will of God. Down came his idol and the edifice of willful love collapsed before the shaking power that took hold of him. The arrogant pride which had slyly planned to thwart God toppled to the ground, broken beyond repair. When Isaac trembled exceedingly, all his desires were shattered. Oftentimes the case that the Lord needs to bring us to that place of brokenness before we get to that place of understanding that we can do nothing apart from God. And we can do nothing to add to the work of God. And how we simply just need to rely upon what God is doing and trust Him by faith. Now, we have an interesting verse in Hebrews regarding this act of Isaac. It says in in Hebrews 11, verse 20, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Now, when we read through this account in Genesis 27, it doesn't seem at all like Isaac's responding or moving in any way by faith. He's not by faith going, well, all right. You know, God said that, that the younger is going to be over the older, the older is going to serve the younger, so I'm going to by faith believe that. No, he's trying to change that. It doesn't seem like Isaac is moving by faith. It seems like Isaac's hand was forced rather than it being an act of faith. But this faith 
that's he, that is talked about in Hebrews, this faith of Isaac is what came after Isaac realized that he had been defeated and the Lord's will prevailed. By faith, he was then able to say, and indeed he shall be blessed, as he says there at the end of verse 33. He's saying that Esau, there's nothing I can do now. I've spoken the word and now I know and believe that he shall be blessed. There's nothing that we can do to change that now. And by faith, Isaac is now speaking that. Verse 34, when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, me also, O my father. But he said, your brother came with deceit and has taken away your blessing. And Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright and now look, he has taken away my blessing. And he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Then Isaac answered and said, Esau, indeed, I've made him your master and all his brethren I've given to him as servants. With grain and wine I've sustained him. What shall I do now for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me, me also, O oh my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Esau just became distraught as he saw that the blessing had now gone to, to Jacob. This is something Esau should not have been freaking out about because he's already sold the birthright to Jacob. This is something that Esau had already willingly for his own satisfaction of his flesh given up. And now he's crying over it. Crocodile tears in a sense. Again, Hebrews gives us a little bit of understanding and insight into these tears. It says in Hebrews 12, verse 16 to 17, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Esau is compared to a profane person. A person that has no desire for the things of God. He, he wept, but these weren't tears of repentance. They were tears of regret. It says that there's no place to be found for repentance. Not that he couldn't have found it if he truly repented, but that there was no desire of true repentance. These were tears of regret for what had happened. He blamed others. He sees this all as Jacob's fault, who is rightly called heel catcher. That's what, what Esau says there in those verses. That's, is he not rightly named Jacob? He's now two times supplanted me. He's blaming Jacob. He's putting the emphasis on others rather than accepting his own responsibility in these matters. Esau wanted the blessings of God without having to be the man that God blesses. He had no desire to walk in the ways of the Lord and to follow the Lord. He wanted the blessings, but he was not willing to be that kind of man that God blesses. How so many lives or people live that way today and expect God to bless them without coming and repenting of their sin and yielding to God. There's a lot of people that cry out in, in regret for things that have done, but have never come to that point of repentance and say, God, I need to stop where I'm going. I need to stop doing things my way, and I need to turn from that and turn your way. I want to follow you, God. That's the person that God blesses, the person that's willing to walk in obedience to the Lord and to follow him and not follow their own ways, their own flesh. Esau wasn't willing to do that. He didn't, he didn't cry tears of repentance. He was not willing to turn his life around. It says in verse 39, Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, your dwelling now. He gives a, a word to Esau. It's a prophetic word. But he says, Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven from above. By your sword you shall live and you shall serve your brother. And it shall come to pass when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. Isaac's blessing really actually is a, an anti-blessing. Now in the, in the New King James where I'm reading from, it sounds like he's saying much the same thing that he said to Jacob where he's going to live by the fatness of the earth. You're going to dwell by the dew of heaven. But it seems to be what is really being communicated here as some newer translations would say. The New Living Translation actually says it this way. You will live away from the richness of the earth and away from the dew of the heaven above. Many 
scholars see that in the original language, this is kind of what's being communed here. Esau and his descendants, the Edomites, would truly dwell in desert places, away from the dew of the earth, away from the, the, the richness and the fatness of the earth. They would be moved away and dwelling in desert places. They would be fierce and prone to fighting. They would be living by the sword, often being that thorn in Israel's side. But God will, however, have his hand on his people and protect them, protecting Israel. And then Isaac says, you shall break his yoke from your neck. It's a, it's a clear prophetic verse here that was fulfilled in, in 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 20 to 22, when the Edomites rebelled against Joram, the king of Judah, and they separated themselves completely. They broke off the, no, the yoke of, uh, of serving there the king. And so Isaac's word coming to fruition there as we see in 2 Kings chapter 8. So, in verse 41, Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand and I will kill my brother Jacob. And the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, surely your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you. Now, Therefore, my son, obey my voice, arise, flee to my brother Laban in Haran, and stay with him a few days until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you've done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereaved also of you both in one day? And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth, like these who are the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? So first of all, in that passage that we read, we see right there in verse 41 that Esau now just hated Jacob. He despised him. He's just angry at him to the point of just murderous hate. And he wants to, he wants to kill him. The word tells us in, in Malachi chapter 1, verse 2 to 3, it says, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I've hated. That's God speaking there. Strong words. But as we see here in Genesis 27, verse 41, there is an agenda that is starting here, and it's one that's going to curve its way all through history, especially in the history of God's people Israel. Esau was the father of the Edomites. And you see, God expresses his anger towards this group of people throughout the Old Testament. And Obadiah is a book that's written entirely to the Edomites. One descendant we come in contact with in the book of Esther is Haman. It tells us in Esther chapter 3, verse 5 to 6, when Haman saw that Mordecai, a Jew, did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. Do you see what's starting to be generated now that we see weaving throughout Scripture, that we see taking place in our day today? That there's an agenda that's looking to wipe out God's people Israel. And the Edomites were a constant thorn in the side of Israel there. And as the plot thickens, the last Edomite that's seen in Scripture, in fact, he's believed to be the last Edomite in history, is Herod the Great. Herod was the one in power during Jesus' birth. He had heard that there was one to be born that would be king of the Jews, and that threatened Herod greatly. So what does he choose to do? we got to wipe out all the male Hebrew babies and his attempt was to wipe out that race, to prevent the Messiah from coming into the world. Why does God hate Esau? Because there's been this agenda throughout the ages, this spirit of Antichrist that attempted to destroy the work of God and of bringing a Savior into the world. Like I said, it lives on in an anti-Semite spirit that rages to this day. It's an evil work that Satan has orchestrated to wipe out the Jew and thwart God's redemptive work. It's not a, about the land. It's not about giving up space. It's not about existing together. It's about exterminating God's people, Israel. That's the spirit that's at work in the world today. That's a satanic agenda that's starting all the way back 
to right here in Genesis 27 with Esau. It continues on this day. That's why when you read, God hated Esau. And again, it's not that God, uh, God cannot hate. But the idea here is that his love for Jacob and what Jacob was going to continue on, his love for Jacob is so much greater that in comparison, it seems as though it's hatred to Esau. Now, this chapter here that we've just looked at, this chapter reveals the, the sinful stubbornness of humanity. People wanted the blessing of God without the submission to God. And guess what? Everyone lost here. Rebecca sends her son away. And guess what? She's never going to see him again. She's thinking it's just going to be for a time and he'll come back. Jacob's going to be gone for years and he'll never see his mother again. Everybody lost in this situation. But in and above this is something of immense beauty and grandeur. The invincible determination of God to keep his word despite the prevailing unbelief and unfaithfulness of his people. God fulfilled his word despite Isaac's opposition, despite Rebekah and Jacob's manipulation, and despite Esau's indifference. God's word cannot be broken. Amen to that. All right. Chapter 28. We got to do it. And it's a shorter one. It's a shorter chapter. And it, it's really cold in here, so nobody's going to fall asleep. That's why we actually do that. That's why I was glad that everybody voted to keep it cold in here. So nobody's going to doze off. Okay. And by the way, we're joking about this in our life group, I think, about people dozing off um, in church. And uh, let me just tell you, I, I grew up in church, and I know what that is like. I spent many hours napping in church. Let me just tell you, okay? So when I do see people dozing off, I sit there and I say, yeah, I know exactly how they feel. And Lord, just give them some good rest. Because I was there. I know it. Sometimes I actually doze off a little bit even when I'm talking up here. But um, <laughs> Chapter 28, verse 1 says, Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take away from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Panaram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself away from there, the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may be an assembly of peoples. Verse 4. And then give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. So Isaac sent Jacob away and he went to Padan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. Verse six, Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take himself away from there. And then as he blessed him, he gave him a charge saying, you shall not take away from the daughters of Canaan and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padanaram. Also, Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father Isaac. So Esau went to Ishmael and took Mahalat, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth, to be his wife in addition to the wives that he had. So here we see in the beginning of this chapter, Isaac confirms the blessing that he had already given to Jacob. Isaac knows and believes that Jacob now is the man that God has chosen. That is something that cannot be argued. He's seen as much as he tried to change that, that this is God's choice and God's word prevails. And with that now comes responsibility to remain pure and true to the calling of God. So that meant, Jacob, I don't want you to marry the, the ladies that are around here. The, the Canaanites are not a holy people. They are not a people that are prone to follow our God. And so, Jacob, you're not to marry these people because in doing so, that's going to corrupt the line that God is seeking to bring the Messiah through. So, with that responsibility, Jacob is sent to Pananaram, where Rebekah was from, to go and find a wife. Now, when Esau saw all that, and he saw that his pagan wives were upsetting the apple cart, remember we see that Esau went and got wives earlier in, uh, in the previous chapter that were just kind of a real problem, right? He's starting to see that this is upsetting the apple cart. They're unhappy about it. So he too decided, well, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to seek to get back into my parents' good books. I'm going to marry children from the, the line of Abraham, right? This is where Esau is thinking. Yet in ironic fashion, Esau, the rejected, takes a wife from the rejected line of Ishmael. Esau has no concept of the Abrahamic covenant 
and the need for purity, he was still very much being driven by the flesh. So he adds to his wives, but he's just adding more and more problem and taking the line of Ishmael. It's like just ironic in a sense here. So reading on verse 10, it says, Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So here's a map here that you see this journey that, and I don't know if you can even read any of those cities there, sorry, but right at the very bottom of the map, you'll see um, Beersheba where, where Jacob is starting out. Haran is all the way up to the top there, and so he's going to be making his way through, you know, the land of Canaan, and then eventually making it up there. But we're going to see he comes to a specific stopping place here. It says in verse 11, So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night. Because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones to that place and put it at his head. And he lay down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and the north and the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Verse 15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I've done what I've spoken to you. So Jacob, he comes to this place, a certain place, right? And of course we know that this is uh, not by coincidence. Coincidence is not a, a kosher word, right? And so he comes to a certain place, but this is a, a specific place here that God is designing. And look at what he does. He comes and he takes a rock for a pillow. They say a good conscience makes for a good pillow. I'm not sure what this is saying about Jacob right now as he's sleeping with a rock for a pillow. And it's all the more remarkable then that it's in this time that God comes and reveals himself to Jacob. You see, this doesn't happen when Jacob is calling out to God, when Jacob is seeking God. It's when Jacob is on the run and he's hiding. This right here is the grace of God on full display. God comes and he meets with Jacob when he's least deserving of it. In the same way, God's grace is available to us when we least deserve it. That's why it's grace. We don't deserve God coming and revealing himself and meeting with us and bringing us into fellowship with him. But that's why it's all of grace. God comes and he meets with Jacob so wonderfully, so lovingly. And God comes and he, and he personally now confirms the promise that was originally made with Abraham and then with Isaac. And God comes and he speaks to Jacob now that same promise. This now completes the fact that Yahweh is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and he's now the God of Jacob, as he's going to be known oftentimes throughout Scripture. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's important to know that God doesn't have any grandkids, right? Sometimes we can easily think, well, my dad was a godly man. He followed the Lord. And so, well, I'm pretty much assured going to heaven. Or my granddaddy, I mean, he was a preacher. Man, that guy was on fire for the Lord. My, my eternity is sealed. Now, we don't rest on the laurels of others that have gone before us. We don't get brought in by birth. This is something that has to become personal for ourselves. You can't rely on the relationship your dad had with God. It has to be personal and real for you. And God right now graciously is calling out to Jacob and he's inviting him in and bringing him in to the reality of relationship with the one true and living God. It's not something that Jacob has just heard. Now, that's happened for Abraham or Isaac. This is now something Jacob is receiving for himself personally. And he has this dream and the dream that Jacob has is, of course, an interesting one. And what is really indicated is that God is present with him. That God has seen all that's going on and is directing all the affairs of the earth. Jacob may feel like he's all alone. Jacob may feel like he's on the run, but God is revealing, I'm with you. I'm here. There's this access now between heaven and earth. Jesus used that picture in speaking to Nathaniel 
in John chapter 1, verse 51, where he said, and he said, And most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Jesus said that to Nathaniel. Interestingly, Nathaniel said, uh, uh, Of whom is no guile, no deceit. And yet here to Jacob, who is all about deceit, God is revealing himself in the same way that Jesus spoke to Nathaniel. And, and when Jesus spoke to Nathaniel, it was to show that Jesus ultimately provides now that access to God. He is the link between heaven and earth, and we are connected now through Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. As second, or sorry, as First Timothy 2, verse 5 says, Jesus is our mediator. He's the one now that brings us into right fellowship and relationship with God. And Jacob now is experiencing that through this dream that there's access, there's an, there's an open way, there's this, you know, ladder or like, you know, I, I think of it like an escalator, just angels are just up this escalator coming up and down, you know, ascending and descending that, that God is at work right where Jacob is. And that God is moving and orchestrating all things. And I love this verse in verse 15. In that one verse, we see God promising Jacob, first of all, his presence. He says, I'm with you. Promises his protection. He says, I'm going to keep you where you go. Promises his preservation. I'm going to bring you back to this land. This land, this land of Canaan, this is going to be your land and your descendants' land. This is going to be the land of Israel. We see his power at work. I will not leave you until I've done what I've spoken to you. I love that. I will not leave you until I and he doesn't say, I'm not going to leave you until you finish the work. And Jacob, I hope you're not a procrastinator, man. Get this done because I got other stuff to do. No, God says, I'm not going to leave you until I have done what I've spoken to you. I'm so glad that God is the one that is accomplishing what he said he'll do in our lives. Again, it reminds us of what we saw in Philippians 1 verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians 5, 23, 24. I was just reading this in my quiet time this morning. I love this. It says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful who also will do it. He's the one doing it. He's the one at work. It's God who works in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. God is at work here. This revelation of God, notice that it, it caused Jacob now to just become a worshiper of God. Pressing in and knowing God in a deeper, more personal way will always instill in us that awe of God and stir us up to be worshipers of him. Look at what we read in verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep he said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he'd put at his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of that city had been Luz previously. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, if God will be with me, and keep me in this way that I'm going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. Now listen, let me just stop right there. Well, let me read the next verse, last verse. And this stone, which I've set as a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. It, what we saw there, verse 20, Jacob saying, if God will be with me, then the Lord shall be my God. This isn't Jacob kind of bargaining with God in a sense, saying, listen, God, if you will do all these things, all right, then, then you've won me over. Then I'll be yours. It, it's more rightly kind of stated that since God will do all these things, I'm his. I have no reason to, to question or to go any other direction. Since the Lord has done all these things, because the Lord is who he said he is, I'm going to follow him. This is Jacob's commitment now to the Lord. But notice there, I love this, because Jacob now, after seeing this great vision of the Lord, this revelation that God is there with him, what does that cause Jacob to do? Realize the Lord's in this place, and this place is awesome. And Jacob wants to worship the Lord now. 
And, and I love what he does. He sets up a pillar or memorial and renames the place Bethel, meaning house of God. This is the very place, the very house of God. It's interesting that Jacob has been on the run. He's sleeping on rocks. But when he finally realized he can't outrun God and that God was with him, what did he do? He took the very rocks and built an altar and worshiped God. See, the very thing that perhaps brings discomfort in your life can be the very thing that we turn around and use to worship God. The very thing that brought discomfort for Jacob one night became the very thing that was used to worship God with. There's going to be times with the, 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 the prickly, problematic things in your lives will be the very instruments that God uses to bring us to a place of praise. To, to, to get our eyes, perhaps, off of ourselves and off of our situations and say, God, I need you. And it's there that we look to God that we can say like Jacob, surely the Lord is in this place. God is here. And regardless of what I might be going through, regardless of the, the pains and the, and the difficulty I might be enduring, God is good. And he's awesome. And this place is awesome and he deserves my praise and my worship. It was on this rocky road that Jacob had his realization, revelation that surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. How often are we missing the presence of the Lord because we've become fixated on our problems, our hurts, our doubts, and yet the reality is that God is in that place. That God is there. And God wants to meet you right there. And he wants to meet you in your weakness and in your hurts, in your pains, in your doubts. God wants to reveal himself to you if you're prone to saying God is nowhere, try putting some space in there. Take a breath and come to the re revelation that God is now here. That's the reality for each and every one of us. We can be those that say, God, no. Where are you? How can you be present when I'm going through what I'm going through and enduring? And yet what we have to realize is God is now here. He's never left me. He's never forsaken me. He never will. He's promised us that. How we need to look to him. Say, Lord, help me in my doubts and my hurts to cause those things to turn me to you and be a worshiper of you and experience that house of God, that awesome place by which we will experience when we turn our sights on God and look to Him and worship Him. All right? Let's pray. Worship team, can we end with one of those songs that we did earlier? And pick any one of those and let's, let's just close with a song. Lord, we're thankful, God, for Your presence. God, the reality that You never leave us Lord, you're never far from us. You're right here, Lord. And I pray that we would truly see that and recognize that. And that, Lord, the things that we oftentimes get fixated on, may those become the, the catalyst to turn us to you and Cause us just to cry out to you and worship and praise and in awe of you, God. Because you are good. You are awesome. And you're with us, Lord. I pray that you would move in our midst here tonight. Move in our hearts, Lord. God, work in us, those that are, are hurting tonight. I pray, Lord, that you would meet with them, that they would experience that fresh touch of you. God, we would know that personal, personal and intimate relationship with you, how you desire to come and reveal yourself to us, how you desire to be in communion with us. Thank you that you've brought us near. Thank you for your work, God.
Let's stand together and as we worship the Lord, let's do this. And we don't oftentimes do this, but I just feel prompted to do this tonight that maybe you're here tonight and you're in a point where you've felt God's distant. You felt God's far from you. You felt like, man, I have not been enjoying that communion and awe of God. And maybe you need to come and in a sense, come to that altar of the Lord here tonight, and I want to invite you to just come and find a place in the front here, whether it's in the front row in the chairs or up against the stage. And I remember so many times in church where we would just come and have that kind of altar call and just come to meet with the Lord. And maybe you're here tonight and you want to do that. You want to kneel down before the Lord, and maybe it's the time for you to be refreshed in Him and to seek Him and to Say, maybe, Lord, I'm, I'm hurting, and I need your touch here tonight. Would you just come and make your way down, and let's allow the Lord to do that work in us and move in our hearts here tonight, okay? As the worship team leads us, make this a time of just prayer and seeking the Lord. If you'd like to come, I just want to invite you down.